You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, we have the third and final episode in our current summer series. As we know on Max's Island, summer is the time to renew those stories from the past year, especially those that captured our interest. In this episode, you'll hear excerpts from three guys who have all had moments in their lives when it all changed for them. Nick's experience was to discover that, in a moment of madness, when he took over the microphone in front of 200 people he didn't know, that he was able to be the person he wanted to be, under his terms, and not just through the encouragement of others. And then Justin will explain to us the moment in his professional career when a chance meeting with a stranger, just someone sitting next to him at a conference, would be the catalyst for his ongoing successful career. Then finally, we'll understand the significance of a single truly visceral moment when Simon fell in love with Africa and began a journey that saw him and his young family at the time set up a business there and experience all that this captivating region has to offer. Enjoy revisiting these stories from last year and I look forward to you joining us soon on Max's Island for our brand new episodes for 2022. Sure. So I've been someone that's fairly afraid of uh, of being caught out, not knowing enough. And it's led me to be a fairly studious academic type, kind of collecting information. Um, what it's also led me to be is kind of sometimes avoiding leadership positions or taking accountability in times where I probably should be or could be or would be the best place to do so. Now that's really interesting Nick because I met you <laughs> the first time I ever met you you were in a leadership position within mm. an, uh, an organization a community organization so I'm really interested to to hear some of the background to that. Yeah sure sure so I've always waited to be called upon and most of the time because I'm really interested in leadership and and motivation and teams I found myself to be in that place but I'm always looking for endorsement, authority. Someone else to say, you're the right person. Very rarely am I saying, pick me, I'm the best at it. Were you the captain of any team at high school? Mate, I was... (laughs) 
just as I was saying, I was pretty much selected by my peers to be the um, head boy at school. Uh, I was captain of my hockey club, of my hockey team. I was a leader in my uh, church community. But in every single one of those circumstances, because someone else has said, we think you're the guy. And that's kind of let me be a bit of a scapegoat because it means I don't step up in the space that I really could be. I'm always looking for the perfect opportunity where all the conditions are right for me to succeed. So where's the story behind that then? Yeah, so I was actually doing a professional, a personal development course uh, probably about four years ago now. And we're about two and a half days through the course and the course is about taking accountability. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, got it. Uh, I really understand this. I'm going to go back and make some changes. And what I didn't realize is that uh, the course was the change. <laughs> is that right? And uh, and had you chosen to go on that course? Yeah. Or had someone encouraged you to go on that course? Oh, my, wife, my now wife encouraged me to go on the course. I, I went kicking and screaming, I think. So this was an occasion where intuitively you didn't go there, but again, you were encouraged to go there. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Nick, here's somewhere that you'll succeed. You should do that. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> and it's really, really straightforward. Uh, we were supposed to take accountability for our teams to complete a task. And one of the teams didn't complete that task. One of the team members in that team failed. Uh, and then so were asked to be, to explain. And then the team the rest of the team were called up and they were asked to explain why they'd let that person down. And then the leader said, you know what? Now that that person doesn't take accountability and the team doesn't take accountability, you're all here to learn about accountability, but no one's doing it, so I'm out. And in front of an audience of 150 people, the lead left the stage. And I was like, as a psychologist, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. That's a really good point. You're intellectualizing it, you know, Just taking myself out of the game. And I knew what had to be done. I knew someone had to jump on the mic and take the leadership. So, um, but no one had asked me. So I leant behind to a fairly well-spoken gentleman and said, oh, you should go up and jump on the mic. And he was like, I don't understand. And I pushed him. I said, go and pick up the mic. This is going to make a difference. So he got up there and, uh, and I thought, yeah, well, this will sort it out. And he was bumbling his way through, trying to sort it out. And, and when you say he was well-spoken, so in a small group you'd been talking and he was very before. articulate. Yep. Yeah, he spoke before. He was an actor and I thought he was really insightful. I thought that's a good guy for the job. I gave away my accountability again. And then within seconds of him speaking up there, I realized I'd just done it again. This is what I do all the time. I'm waiting for someone else to push me because it's going to be absolutely perfect. I know I'm going to nail it. And I realized I just gave it away again. And so what felt like it was five minutes of him speaking was probably about 30 seconds in reality. And I jumped up to the microphone and um, I don't know if this is a child rated version, but I said, everybody shut the fuck up really loudly to a room of 200 people I'd never met before. And growing up in a Christian, very like uh, sensible kind of part Chinese family, that sort of behavior is totally unacceptable. <laughs> and uh, to my surprise, I was eloquent. I was very well spoken, but also I just instantaneously expanded. And I realized, actually, it's on me now. And I'm the person that gives me permission to be accountable. And no one else does. And 
I can be what's needed when it's required, even if I don't understand what it's going to look like. A couple of questions. Firstly, where do you think the shut the fuck up came from? <laughs> I'm really interested in that yeah. because if it's not a norm for your childhood, then wonder where that came from. Yeah, because I operate, as I said before, a lot from my head. I'm quite a, a studious character and... Um, and I talk about things from an intellectual perspective, but rarely from the gut, because I've you know pre-thought this, I've strategized my way through it, and at that moment there was no strategizing, there was no planning or scripting. It was all bang straight from the gut. Say what needs to be said, and then deal with the consequences. I'm always interested about people's feelings. Mm. How did you feel when you were up there at the the moment? Probably there was a couple of moments. One, when you first got up there. Mm. Secondly, when the crowd were quiet. And then thirdly, at the end of your time on stage. Yeah. I. Uh, another reason why I've shirked leadership is because I've always thought that it's lame. Look at me, everybody. I've never wanted to be, I want to be in the spotlight. But through that experience, I realized I was just the mouthpiece for the group. And that's what gave me even more, a greater sense of power. And also authenticity. I was being true to my word. I was speaking from the heart. And I made a real difference. And people came up to me afterwards, after about half an hour of <laughs> sorting it out. And they said, wow, Nick, that was amazing. And I kind of stepped off cloud nine. I was like, yeah, I just did that. And that was a 30-minute experience to me. But what it led to was I took significant steps in my own life personally to yeah and in work to say yes and not even before I said said yes not even wait for the question so I ran 12 week-long co-design workshops all around the world and that power that I experienced that expansion wasn't lame look at me everybody it was I'm what is needed for this moment well um you know, as you know, I worked in the advertising industry. I was lucky enough to try and follow in your very big boots when you left uh, when you left JMG. And uh, um, just be careful, mate. That's uh, thirty plus years ago. Shh. shh. <laughs> um, but but I mean, you know, that was you know for me that was a that was a a big opportunity, and I was you know that was something for me to aspire to. And I think I worked pretty bloody hard in, in you know, that time moving. That was a bit of a change for me, certainly a bit of a step up. And then I worked there for a period of time and then went to another agency. And I really got used to that ad advertising agency kind of uh, flavour of things. So I felt like I really knew what I was doing, understood it all, could see a career path there and, and all the rest of it. I sat down with a guy by the name of Larry Quick and I remember sitting in his Nissan Patrol in the middle of winter just before we were about to go into a breakfast meeting and he started talking about the internet and what that would be. And I was just about to go to move to an agency called Stratagem, which was one of the, I think we were about top four or five in, in Perth at that time. And he started talking about the internet and opportunities of size of football ovals and a whole bunch of things. And I was about to go in and, you know, talk about, you know, print ads and newspapers and all that traditional stuff. So it started me thinking, and it started a, 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 a bit of a point of change for me. And so then I got involved with, I joined a thing called Margot Multimedia Centre, which was a, initially governed 
run agency to try and foster new media and new technologies in this space back in, in that time frame, which was interesting and different. I was, got involved as a director, didn't really know particularly what I was doing, if I'm honest. I tried hard. Um, and then um, as a part of that, I convinced my fellow board members that I should go to a thing called the World Ecom Conference in 1999, right? And that was a Burr's word, and uh, I remember going along to that, and I remember thinking, I just have a feeling there's a big opportunity here somewhere. I don't know where it is, but my eyes are going to be open, and when it turns up, I'm going to grab it. And so the final day of the conference, I'm sitting next to a guy from the UK, and he turned to me and he goes, have you got a minute? And I went, ah, oh, this is it. And we went and found... You know, back, you remember back when you used to, you know, you'd go to like almost like an internet kiosk, yes, to try and find some awful like you know two eighty six computer that connects to the <laughs> right, and it was just slow as it is. And he was trying to demo some of the stuff that, that those guys were doing. This is back in nineteen ninety nine, and I just went, "Wow, this is so far in front of the market." And I went, "I," and he said, "Do you want to do this? Do you want to set this up in Australia?" And I went, "I can't not do it." So he had come from the UK to this conference. Yeah, he'd and flown from he'd flown from he lived in Cheshire in in the UK and they had a, an office in sunny Stockport. Which, if you've got any listeners that have been anywhere near Stockport, they know that sunny and Stockport are two words that don't go together, right? Okay. So that's really interesting that he picked you yeah. and started the conversation. Yeah, I don't I don't know what it was. I was just you know I think uh, I was interested. I was in, like you had the head of tech from British Airways there. And so what would happen is morning tea would happen and everybody would file out and I'd run straight up to the presenters and ask them like as many questions as I possibly could. Because that's what you do, you take advantage of the opportunity that's, that's there. And so I, and so, you know, he just said to me, I've heard you ask questions and I've seen what you've done in terms of engaging with these speakers and whatever you hear. I reckon, I reckon, you know, we could do something together. So that started some backwards and forwards, and then um, I ended up resigning from Stratagem, I think, in about February of, uh, of uh, 2000, and then we opened up KMP, uh, kmpinternet.com, as it was, it was uh, called then, and then four weeks later, we had the tech wreck. Wow, good timing. Oh, just impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, I opened Emergination in 2008. So, Tony, if you ever hear me talking about some great big business opportunity, pull everything back to you cash. You know the market's going to crash. Pull everything back to cash. <laughs> Bill would come out every 90 days and we would go selling, right? And... Believe it or not, in the ad agency, I actually hadn't done a lot of selling. In my early career, I'd uh, done business-to-business -business sales, I'd done my marketing degree, went to selling first off. I thought, if you can't sell anything, you can't market, right? So, um, but with the ad agency, we hadn't done much. And so we'd had a few big clients, and that kept us busy, and that was it. But we hadn't done a lot of BD. So here I was, trying to start a business from scratch and try and, you know, get all that to go, trying to sell something I didn't really understand. All right. So we would go out pitching and we would, um, one day I think we did 14 different meetings. Wow. And I was just, by the time we finished, well, I was just dead, 
Absolutely did. I think the first one was like seven in the morning and like eight o'clock at night we finished. You know, it was just unbelievable. And what sort of businesses were you pitching at? Size Anything. Oh, just kind of anything. Yeah. I mean, it was absolute total shotgun theory. <laughs> so, so, and, uh, you know, so I learnt, I learnt uh, an awful lot of stuff. And the, one of the things I found um, was it was like selling in shifting sands because everything was changing. So Bill would come out three months later and the whole sales pitch had changed. And I'm just going, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, you know, I'm sitting here and I'd listen to the, and try and know sagely and wisely in some of these meetings, right, and see if I can get away with it. And, um, yeah, it was just everything was changing all the time. And then after a while I went, ah, I see what's going on. Bill's taking whatever happened in the last meeting, adding something on, and that became part of the new story that we were weaving. And I went, oh, I've got it. I've got it now. I can do this. And so it was... Um, I referred to it as walking on water, which has got no religious connotation. It was really about the shifting, that shifting motion between your feet and keeping an eye on the lighthouse and keeping, keeping moving forward. It was really interesting. Keeping off the rocks. Yeah, trying to as best as you can. Well, I can almost give you the date, but I, I, it was 1990, and I was working for a program called Beyond 2000, a, a science and technology show, which was, I guess, you know, I would use the word iconic at the time. It was uh, watched by a big audience around Australia and I was incredibly fortunate uh, and lucky to be working on it. And so went to Zimbabwe with the show um, and that's when Qantas used to fly to Zimbabwe. Uh, can you believe it? Um, <laughs> once a week, they had a flight going into Harare out of Johannesburg and uh, the Qantas crews, you can imagine, they absolutely loved it. It was, it was that there was a week long layover. These were very different times, only thirty years ago. But so I went. It was my first time to Africa, and I stepped off the plane in Harare, and it was visceral. It was this instant love affair with the smells, the air. Uh, there was dust. It was sort of the end of the dry season, um, and I just thought. Where has this been all my life? I, I'd been told by a, a friend of mine, in fact, a guy who you and I both know, who was a Qantas pilot, Steve Horn's his name. He had been flying to, um, to Zimbabwe for a couple of years with Qantas. And he said, mate, he said, you are going to have a life-changing experience when, this, when, you, when you finally get there. And, and sure enough, uh, three years after him, I, I did. And it was, it was like... Um, a punch in the stomach you know it was it was instant and it hasn't the magic of that day has not left me uh, and that was 31 years ago and I still feel exactly the same way about well certainly about Zimbabwe and about Africa generally uh, and I vowed pretty much then and there to go back and live in Africa at some point. Now, there are 54, 55 countries in Africa. So I, I, I fell in love with Southern Africa, had been lucky to travel to East Africa as well, uh, to Kenya and Tanzania a few years after that with another program. But I, I, I vowed to myself on that first trip that I'd go back and, and live there at some point. I came back and told my dear partner, Linda, that this is going to happen and you can come too if you want, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm going to do it. And so one thing and led to another. Uh, we ended up having our daughter in the sort of mid to late 90s. And it was at that time that uh, the planets aligned 
and uh, people whom I'd known in South Africa had moved to Botswana, uh, moved their operation, their safari operation to Botswana. And I'd been talking to them for, for a long time, hoping that this might happen before we had a child. But, you know, life never works that way, does it? You know, it's never on never straight lines. So they said, look, we like your plan. We like this idea of this you forming this production company and attaching it to our safari operation. Come on over when you're ready. So our daughter was roughly about sort of 18 months at the time. And uh, Linda, my partner, bless her, she had the, the guts and the courage to sort of step up and say, yep, you know, I'm, I'm up for this. So we packed up our lives, jumped on a, another Qantas plane out of, um, uh, out of Perth, actually, and flew to, to Johannesburg and, and then bought a car, bought a, a four-wheel drive, drove up to Botswana, which was about sort of 14, 1500 Ks into a tiny little town called Maun, M-A-U-N, which is at the bottom of the Okavango Delta. And so we had the two most wonderful years of, of my life, certainly. Linda might say something different if she was here talking about this, but it was just adventure, great friends, incredible times, uh, difficult times as well, challenge, lots of challenges. But um, I think I've said to a lot of people since then, you know, when, you, when you're over there and when you're stepping way out of your comfort zone like that, you know, you, you are truly living. You're not just existing. I think a lot of the time we, we sort of roll through life. We were on automatic. We're not really paying much attention to what's around us. You know, being in the moment, which is the, the sort of de rigueur term of, of the day. But um, over there, we were in the moment all the time for, for better and, and sometimes for worse as well. Simon, you went over there to set up a business. How easy was that in a foreign country? Well, I had to sell the idea first to the managing director of the company called Quando Safaris, that's K-W-A-N-D-O, for anyone who's listening and wants to look them up. And Kevin, uh, I'd met him in South Africa uh, working for another show that I was doing at the time called Wildlife. I was reporting for a, a show that Olivia Newton-John hosted here for the Nine Network. And I'd met him at a, at a wonderful place called Pinda. And uh, I'd... I guess I'd been formulating this idea for some time. Uh, and so I was ready to go with my pitch when I met him and we'd spent a couple of days in the bush together. And, uh, and I felt like, you know, he was somebody I, I, I liked and could trust. And I put this idea to him about attaching a television production company to their safari operation to try and add value to their safari brand and their, their camps. And so he liked the idea. And, and so we talked about it for a couple of years. Then, as I mentioned, they moved their operations from South Africa up to Botswana. And, and he actually uh, re-initiated that discussion, uh, revived it and said, you know, is this something you're still thinking of? You know, are, are, you, are you at that place? And so I'd been working on a medical program at the time called Good Medicine on, on Channel 9. And, uh, and I went to my boss then and said, uh, Peter, this, uh, another legendary character of television called Peter Meekin, I said, I'm, I'm actually going to go to Botswana, Botswana <laughs> and live. And his reaction was classic with a, a few choice words. Um, and, uh, and so six months later, we were, we were on that plane, you know. So 
the, the, the great thing was that, you know, Kevin bought into that, uh, into that sort of dream of mine. And, and I knew going there, I, I wasn't doing it. I was doing it for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. I, I, I went there not to make pots of money because that didn't happen. And I think that's a, something that we learn, you know, through life, uh, sometimes to our detriment, but, but you, you, it, it is worth following that dream through um, because I know that I would have been cheating myself if, if, we hadn't, if I hadn't followed through on that. And I've fortunately still got someone who allows me to go back as often, I can, as, often as I can, finance and time permitting and everything to still get that hit. But, but yeah, we went for the right reasons, I think. And so lots of things happened as a result of that. Thanks again for joining me on the island and listening to these unique stories. Next time on the island will be our first new guest for 2022 and a story that will set the scene for the rest of the year. I'll see you soon. Each day was a blur, all work and all play and how, how it had turned out this way. Short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way No one's an island, but sometimes it's good to pretend Sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone.